0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. This is going to be a slightly unstructured talk in the sense that um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the experience of putting the exhibition together uh, as well as run through some of the works that um, those of you who haven't seen the show will see when you take the opportunity to go and see the show, and those of you who have seen the show, well, you may already um, have some, um, uh, you will have seen the works, but you hopefully will gain a bit more insight um, to what the works are about, uh, or at least what some of the interpretations of the works are about. I should also state from the beginning that um, this is quite an unusual departure for us because unlike most of the lone exhibitions that we do here at the Royal Academy, uh, this exhibition is one where we distinctly encourage people with digital devices and uh, phones and uh, cameras and so on and so forth to actually go into the exhibition and record your experiences, record uh, the works uh, in any way you want and to disseminate that information that's very clearly part of what Wei Wei is about as well. So this idea that we can share this knowledge or experience is very key to the exhibition. Just a little bit of background perhaps for those of you who don't know uh, that much about Weiwei, Wei, uh, the man. Um, he uh, was born um, to, uh, well, both his parents are writers, but his father in particular was a very celebrated poet, Ai Ching, and you can see him here uh, with a very young Ai Weiwei. Wei. Um, and Weiwei uh, Wei was born in 1957, and within a year of his birth, there were uh, kind of very strong moves against uh, intellectuals, or uh, the idea that uh, people who um, demonstrated free speech uh, and um, were discussing, having lively discussions about not only the culture but the political and economic situation in China, had been encouraged by the Communist Party to give full voice to those um, concerns and debates and discussions that they had been having in a public, in a more public way uh, and the consequence of that was in 1959, uh, 58 and 59, there was widespread suppression of intellectuals, uh, free-thinking individuals who were, who were questioning perhaps some of the um, political strictures in place at the time. Uh, and uh, Ai Weiwei's father, Ai Ching, was one of those intellectuals that was um, clamped down upon in the anti-rightist movement. It was called, uh, and first sent to northeast China on the borders with Korea, and then, uh, more seriously, uh, to northwest China, uh, where he spent um, the next, basically, the next 20 years in internal exile. In um, China. So here was a man, a free-thinking, uh, intellectual, a poet, a man of great culture, a man who traveled outside of China, uh, who moved in intellectual circles, suddenly found himself, um, moved away from Beijing, where he lived, and where Weiwei was born, uh, and placed into a labor camp, uh, and part of the responsibilities that he had there, in fact, the main duty that he had there, was to clean public toilets. Now. I didn't know, and I'm sure some of you uh, probably do know. But uh, if you haven't been to Beijing or China generally, uh, mainland China, uh, lots of people uh, don't actually have um, sewage or running water in their homes, um, and they actually use communal toilets, public toilets. Um, So it's quite common, in fact, as you go through neighborhoods in Beijing, to uh, come across a public toilet, and then you know not much further down the road come across another one, so they serve a very, you know, a clear, distinct public function. Um, but for obviously, for a, a cultured individual to be reduced um, to kind of that work was a major... Um, calamity isn't quite the quite right word, but I mean a, a major kind of restriction on their freedom of thought and freedom of movement as well as kind of a, a, a really Humiliating, I suppose, would be one word uh, of of describing it. Now Weiwei um, went with his father uh, and spent the first 20 years of his life pretty much in these uh, these conditions, and at one point they actually lived literally in a hole, um, dug out of the ground and covered with um, tree branches. Um, But he learnt a lot from his father, had huge respect for his father, and in particular was very impressed and speaks uh, about how um, his father was reduced to this very menial job, a uh, low job, um, but that his father was determined to be the very best that he could. So his toilets, Weiwei Wei says, were always the cleanest. Um, so he kind of combated that situation by um, confronting it full on, if you like. A major influence in Weiwei's life, I think, um, as we will hopefully will see throughout uh, maybe this presentation also in the exhibition. Um, After Chairman Mao died in 1976, the family were rehabilitated and moved back to Beijing uh, where there was this Beijing Spring, it was called, uh, which was a a restriction on some of the... um, it was a sort of restriction on freedom of education and freedom of movement. Uh, It was a short-lived thing, but it allowed Weiwei to go into the Central School of uh, Art in Beijing, where he studied animation. And it was at this point in the late 70s, 78, that he joined this group called The Stars, um, which were this young group of artists who were trying to um, find new ways of expressing themselves uh, through art. Um, This had a very kind of uh, complicated relationship with the authorities who uh, they weren't able to get access to museums or galleries uh, so they had their first exhibition literally by hanging their work on the railings outside of the National Museum in Tiananmen Square. Uh, The work was removed, there was a process of negotiation, they were given the space to show their work for two weeks and so on and so forth, so it was always a slight um, battle with the authorities to get their work shown and to be able to express themselves. Um, And soon after that, uh, beginning of 1980, 1981, the kind of censorship started coming back. Um, And so many artists decided that time was right to leave China uh, and to seek kind of cultural, artistic freedom elsewhere. Weiwei, like many, went to America this is a photograph of him in New York, the Lower East Side where he lived. And he went first to Philadelphia, uh, where he sort of started um, haphazardly learning English, then moved to San Francisco where he spent a year, again, uh, learning English with the view to entering uh, art school. He entered Parsons School of Design in New York um, in 1983, and he spent the next 10 years living in New York. So I think what's really interesting about Weiwei is he has this very, uh, very tough, very, very tough kind of upbringing. Uh, No frills, uh, no uh, luxuries, very basic kind of existence. Um, He then experienced this kind of uh, sprouting of artistic cultural expression in China, which was then trampled down and then went to America. And of course, what we probably tend to overlook is at that time, artists, budding artists in China had no access to the kind of libraries um, and facilities that we do, so they had no access to books about the history of Western art, for example, virtually none whatsoever. So moving to America was, was in a way like um, seeing the world anew and having the ability to see exhibitions, to travel to museum collections and see things in a very different way. Um, but throughout his time he was still a kind of budding uh, artist, he hadn't uh, much success. He had a show uh, in New York at um, a gallery there, but he didn't sell anything in that show. He basically made his money by uh, doing odd jobs, working restaurants, um, working as a portrait artist in Times Square, and perhaps most successfully uh, going to Atlantic City and playing cards. He's a demon card player, so if you ever get the invitation to play cards with him, I'd think twice. (laughs) Um, So he stayed in New York, uh, and he, by that point, had encountered Marcel Duchamp, and uh, was very influenced by the notion of the ready-made, taking uh, often industrially-made products uh, or objects and transforming them into art objects, something that he experimented with a lot at that time. and. Something, I think, that has kind of continued throughout his work, this notion of taking something that pre-exists and reformulating it. So, in 1993, he returned to China. Uh, his father, by that point, was actually quite ill, and I think he saw that as a kind of excuse, a reason to go back, um, because he had, at that point, no real intentions of going back to China, but he decided that it was a good moment Um, to justify going back. So he went back, and he's been there ever since. And this exhibition really starts uh, in 1993 or 1994 um, and is really pretty much an exhibition that examines the last 22 years of work that he's produced in China over that period. Um, So a little bit of... This is the layout of the exhibition. For those of you who haven't been round, this is actually uh, something that we've produced specially for the exhibition, so it's part and many of you will be familiar with our kind of gallery guides you get when you purchase your ticket. This is a gallery guide with a bit of a difference because it folds out to give you a kind of map of the exhibition and a kind of logic to how the exhibition works. But of course, people are free to kind of move around the galleries as they choose. Uh, and I suppose it would be quite, uh, at this point, we might be quite, good idea just to give you a bit of the the story about the preparation of the exhibition and how it came about. And I think really what's quite uh, interesting and moving in many ways was the fact that the last major, well, the last exhibition that uh, Weiwei worked on outside of China, which he was able to attend, uh, was actually the um, sunflower seed installation at Tate Modern in 2010, which I'm sure many of you have visited and seen. Some of you may have even picked up some seeds and have them at home somewhere. I know plenty of people did. Um, There were a hundred million of them after all. Um, And uh, it was, in fact, after he returned to China, following that um, experience, that the situation began to deteriorate for him in terms of his relationship with the authorities and his free movement. So it's rather fitting and completely coincidental for us that the first exhibition that he was able to um, witness or experience and help install after his passport was returned to him in July this year was back in London uh, and hit this time at the Royal Academy. And he, uh, despite being an honorary Royal academician, this is uh, those artists and architects that are not born in the UK can have this title of being an honoree, uh member of the Academy. Um, Weiwei had never actually been inside the building. When he was here uh, for the Tate uh, installation, he did actually venture into the courtyard, but we discovered after uh, initial conversations with him that he'd never actually stepped inside the building and had no idea what the galleries looked like uh, or the type of exhibitions really that we did. So uh, we had to think on our feet a little bit about how to um, work with him on this project because obviously he was not allowed to leave China. He was free to move around mainland China, but uh, well, relatively free that is, um, but not actually to leave the country. Um, So the first thing that I thought would be quite useful and quite easy to do in many ways would be to shoot a film of the galleries. And at that point we had Anson Kiefer on Um, And I started the tour actually on Piccadilly, so that he would have a sense of coming through the archway off Piccadilly into the courtyard, moving through the courtyard, which of course at that point had that installation by Kiefer, the big aquariums, and then moving up the main stairs into the vestibule where the shop is and the entrance to the exhibition, and then working sequentially around the galleries, um, and in each case pointing out details such as the height of which we can uh, paint the walls, the type of ceilings we have, uh, the weight uh, restrictions we have in certain places, and also um, the kind of floor, grill, all those kind of details like that. And um, so we sent that, we sent that off to him uh, with some plans. And um, at that point, um, I don't think we'd actually even met him. Uh, but Tim Marlow, who uh, is Artistic Director at the Royal Academy and co-curator of the show, along with Weiwei himself and and me, um, went out to visit him uh, the first time and I put together this big package of kind of ideas that we'd had about what we could do with the space. And it was a, it was a, hugely ambitious uh, document, far too many works, much more than we could accommodate, but the kind of sense was that we wanted to be ambitious with the space and we wanted to include a lot um, of the big works as much as possible in the spaces we have. Um, Out of that uh, came a distilled version. Weiwei took his time to look through it. And at that point, it was uh, Weiwei's decision to basically omit works prior to his return, with the exception of one piece, um, uh, to omit all the early works that he made in New York, the sort of ready-made works as they have become known. And uh, he'd come up with a plan, um, an idea, which we then uh, refined. Um, and it was that process of refining the idea that came up with the plan that you, have, you see behind me here. Um, And it was a remarkably, I mean, let me tell you, it was a remarkably straightforward process. We sent him the dossier of works in September last year. This was, I mean, the agreement to do the show only happened in September last year. Uh, And by November, when I made my um, first visit to to the studio and sat down with Weiwei, uh, we laid out the exhibition and it hadn't really changed since. So that was kind of revelatory in itself and part of that is his incredible ability to uh, of course we he had the film of the galleries but that's you know a 10 minute 15 minute kind of fly through really in some ways but his ability to kind of see space configure space and uh, fill the galleries with his work was uh, kind of quite awesome to witness uh, and the confidence he had in the layout of the exhibition and the choice of materials. We did a bit of horse-trading early on about some of the works, um, but essentially the concept of the show didn't change at all, um, which I think is pretty remarkable. I've worked with uh, other artists and often there is some quite late-minute changes and uh, anxieties about what the galleries can and can't do and what the exhibition is about, but not so with Wei, Wei. So he's a man who's very confident about uh, his art and confident about what he's trying to tell through his art. I think that's kind of quite interesting in itself. Um, And so uh, the exhibition really starts, and I've only got a few um, uh, works up on the slideshow that I thought we could talk about in a little bit more detail. Um, But in essence, the show starts uh, in gallery one Thankfully we call it Gallery 1 as well, in fact the numbers of the galleries don't really change. Uh, we, we refer to all these galleries with these numbers except for Gallery 10 and number 11. Gallery 10 is known as the lecture room and uh, Gallery 11 is the central hall. Um, but the exhibition opens, um, in fact I do uh, think I have an image of this work, with this work called BED, which dates from 2004. Uh, and it's actually the second, only the second time it's ever been shown. It was shown once in Switzerland in Bern, in an exhibition there. And uh, it's a little hard to see from this uh, photograph, and I'm sure those of you who've been into the galleries will, will kind of know the shape and form it takes. It is pretty substantial, um, and it sort of fills most of the central space of the gallery, and is actually um, a map of China. Some of you may know that he does lots of work with maps, in particular maps of China, um, some of which are more overtly political than others. Uh, he did a map in baby, milk baby formula cans uh, which was uh, shown in Hong Kong, which was uh, a commentary on the poisoning, the melanine poisoning, that uh, lots of children uh, suffered from during the year of the Olympics in 2008. Um, but this is a, a, an early work, and I think it's a, a rather fantastic way to start the exhibition, I have to say so. Uh, I think his choice here was, was uh, kind of inspired. We, we hummed and hard about which of the map works to put in this space, and we agreed on this one, um, partly because of what happens in Gallery 3, which I'll show you in a moment. Um, but what this is made of are, is um, a selection of recycled or reclaimed um, wood, tieli wood, which is a hardwood. It's actually called iron wood, um, and is a material that is historically associated with the great building kind of um, boom in the Qing Dynasty. Qing Dynasty is 1644 to 1911, quite a long dynasty, um, but uh, it was a time when Beijing increased in size, or Peking as it then was. Uh, and this wood is incredibly durable uh, and has stood the test of time and was, until relatively recently, used um, for building of palaces and temples in particular, so top-end kind of buildings. It's uh, now a material that uh, can be bought uh, as salvage by weight. You you pay for it not by the quality of the object itself, but by the weight of it. Um, and what Weiwei has done is taken these timbers and reformulated them, reconfigured them uh, in, in in many different ways, as we'll see as we go through the slide presentation. But in this case, it's, uh, he's created this map of China, which, if you can imagine the outline, the geopolitical borders of China, as you would see them uh, in an atlas. This is, they're represented by all these sort of uh, rises and falls, the kind of contours, if you like, of the map. And if you could imagine the map, if you could imagine taking a, which cutting one part of that map and then just opening it up and laying it flat like a mattress. This is what he's done. So he's kind of just taken the country. So from it being a rough round shape, he's just made it flat. And not, not only has he done that, but more recently this year, in fact, or last year, this year and last, he's made this work, which is called, it's an untitled work, uh, which is uh, 44 of these roundels. And these equate, this is a slightly kind of complex idea, it took me a little while to grasp it myself, but if you can imagine this being sliced across here 44 times, maybe like you would slice a cake, uh, but just lengthwise, each section of that is then bent round on itself to create uh, a very distinct shape, and each one of the 44 has its own uh, contours, so the contours of that map are translated into the contours of that map, Um, and then they just there's a blank space, they just occupy the wall. So I think from the outset, Wei Wei is laying down a marker saying that this exhibition is about the time that he's been in China, it's very much about him being a Chinese artist, and it's very much about uh, Chinese heritage, culture, and history, uh, and, and expressions of, um, or comments on Chinese society today. So the reason that all these timbers are available um, is the fact that uh, those of you who've been to Beijing will know, uh, I myself was pretty surprised when I saw it the first time. It's an incredibly modern city, uh, much less uh, historic fabric than I anticipated. In fact, very little historic fabric has been left. Um, And by that, we have the Forbidden City, which is a gigantic kind of piece of heritage in the centre of the city opposite Tiananmen Square. Uh, And then there are one or two of the traditional districts known as hutons, which are these uh, kind of like narrow alleyways. If you can imagine, slightly almost like medieval streets, very narrow with these low rise buildings on either side. Um, And these buildings are basically uh, inward facing courtyard based houses. So that was a very typical residential kind of feature. Weiwei himself was born in one of those uh, hutons, and lived in one of those hutons when he was um, uh, going to art school in Beijing. Those neighbourhoods, large numbers of those, have been demolished, uh, and the palaces and temples sited within them to make way for the modernization of Beijing, and the kind of race for uh, industrial strength and global dominance, um, and the kind of interest or support of heritage has been a price that they've paid uh, in pursuit of that economic gain. Uh, and this is something that has kind of not only just affected Weiwei, but it's something that he references a lot by reusing these materials. So this is a very noble material. It's been around for three, 400 years. It stood the test of time, yet it still kind of has been removed to allow for this process to take place. So I think in, one of the things that's really interesting about Weiwei is they're often these layers or um, and kind of connections in his work that are not immediately obvious when you look at them, despite the kind of uh, aesthetic appeal and the quality of the craftsmanship. If you do, or when you do go into the galleries, do take a look down the side here, and you'll see the unbelievable quality of the joins that have been made to create this work, all the different uh, pieces of wood and how they've been configured to hold this shape. So moving from from bed, um, so we uh, see, we're talking about China, we're talking about events that have influenced both Weiwei and um, China more widely. Uh, I think the kind of key work and the key gallery within the exhibition is Gallery Three, our largest gallery, uh, which is dominated by a work we're about to see in a moment, um, which, and the content of this entire gallery revolves around the earthquake in Sichuan in 2008. This was an earthquake that happened in the middle of the morning uh, in May, uh, and with devastating consequences, massive uh, destruction of buildings, uh, somewhere between 70 to 90,000 people killed. Um, And Weiwei, at this point, um, didn't really kind of know why, but he was drawn to go up to the region, oops, sorry, uh, where he was able to witness scenes of the destruction himself. These are four of the sixteen, I think photographs in the exhibition um, and you 'll see here this sea of backpacks uh, and this is particularly poignant, I think I mean obviously, the destruction is is very noticeable and extraordinary in its kind of um, scale. But what Weiwei really responded to, and it's something that he's used in his work further on, is also the high death toll amongst uh, school children. Uh, At this time of the day, children were at school uh, and um, over 5,000 were killed uh, in the state-built schools uh, when the buildings just collapsed, basically, on top of them, Um, and many parents never saw their children again. Authorities were quick to kind of uh, move in and start the cleanup process, but there was no real interest in identifying the names of the victims. So um, Weiwei, with others, set up what they called a citizen's investigation and started systematically trying to give names uh, to... They decided to focus on the children, so they decided to systematically um, establish the names sex, age, uh, of the children that had suffered in the earthquake. They're they're very, uh, quite harrowing scenes, and there's a video in the the exhibition. It was a very torturous process. The authorities did not uh, support uh, Weiwei and his fellow uh, investigators in this uh, endeavour. In fact, they tried to block them, they arrested people, they beat people up, Uh, they did everything they could to prevent this uh, investigation from going on. Wei Wei himself was uh, beaten up and prevented from testifying in a court case. And uh, two weeks later, um, when he went to Munich, suffered a brain hemorrhage as a consequence of the beating, uh, and was, you know, had emergency surgery. Um, indeed, in fact, the first thing he did after he got his passport um, back was to go and see his doctor in Munich and to have a full health check, make sure that he was okay. Um, so uh, they started this citizen's investigation, you can't really see it in this, but this is a list of names. There are columns running down and there are over five, nearly 5,200 names of children that they were able to identify. Uh, and there are others that they know they never will be able to identify. Um, but they made uh, a pretty kind of uh, laudable effort at uh, gathering this information and um, publicizing it. At this point, Weiwei um, had kind of discovered the internet, and from being a kind of uh, technophobe, he became a kind of techno... Um, what would you call it? Techno... Whiz, Whiz. geek, whatever. <laughs> um, really into... and he started blogging, uh, and his blogs are very outspoken, and you can... there is a book actually which has a number of those uh, blogs uh, in it. Uh, very out- outspoken critic of the whole situation, and... Um, So this this name list, you'll see, it flanks both sides of the galleries. It's a pretty sobering document in itself. Uh, And this really is when he started having tremendous problems with the authorities in China for his outspoken statements and views. Not only Weiwei, of course there are others as well. Um, But the key work to come out of this uh, is a work called Straight. Uh, You'll see it here. Um, it is uh, a work that's taken four years to make, um, and it is comprised of steel rebar. So, steel rebar, for those of you who don't know, is the uh, the steel rods that people use in the construction of reinforced concrete. Um, and you'll see a lot of it probably in London when they lay out these grids and kind of attach all the uh, rods together to form a kind of um, grid, of which they then pour the concrete over. Or uh, pillars as well, um, and uh, the the rebar that Weiwei has used here is not just rebar that he's gone down to a builder's yard and collected and purchased. This was rebar that came from the uh, scenes that we witnessed earlier, um, from the detritus of the buildings that collapsed. So he bought 200 tons of twisted, mangled rebar that had been as is often the case with uh, construction, you 'll probably notice that they separate out the concrete which is taken to be pulverized, uh, and the uh, steel is taken to be recycled. so he bought two hundred tons of this steel uh, that was destined to be recycled and um, took it to his studio in shanghai uh, in Shanghai in Beijing, and didn 't really know what to do with it, but he felt that you know he wanted to use a material that was visceral to, the kind of, to, to that earthquake, something that had come out of that earthquake. And so what he had uh, uh, was this huge pile of, and he still has some of it actually in his uh, studio, and 150 tons of that was straightened out by hand by individuals over this four year period. We unfortunately don't have 150 tons in the gallery. In fact, it's never been shown in its entirety, but we do have, 90, we do have 96 tons which is a first for us. We don't think we've ever had an installation of that magnitude in the galleries. Um, And you can see here it is uh, alongside the name list. These are photos of our galleries. Um, And it's a rather significant work, I think, because not only does it contain material that was um, taken from the buildings themselves, but also a constant kind of uh, reminder, if you like, of the accusations that were thrown about the standards of building um, that had been applied. And there was widespread belief that um, the local authorities had cut back on the materials they used for the buildings, um, which obviously, um, when it came to the earthquake, meant that they collapsed, quicker and um, more readily than they would have done if they'd been built properly. And the, the, the complaint is, the accusation is that this was done for personal uh, profit so that they cut back on the spending of the building materials so that they could uh, profit from it economically. So uh, a lot of the buildings actually didn't have any reinforced concrete at all. Um, so we have this kind of, in a way, un- unforgivable, um, cost-cutting uh, and yet unforgettable kind of uh, memorial to the very material itself. And furthermore, it has these incredible undulations which um, sort of make you feel like the, the plates that the, the moved in the earthquake, the actual movement of the earth is captured in the work itself. I think it's a, an unbelievably powerful and, and somber memorial to the people that died in that earthquake. And again, uh, one of the things that Weiwei and I talked about was the visual connection between this and bed. Very similar kind of form when you look at it through this from the side. So a nice kind of connection in that respect. So you can see it here. Um, So we'll we'll move on to a a story that is less about uh, the impact across a much broader section of the population in China to something that's much more personal to Weiwei Wei himself and these crabs are rather fun aren't they 3000 porcelain crabs and i couldn't resist putting that that was uh, they came out of their boxes from china uh, and they uh, they art handlers and technicians laid them all out on the table 3000 of these little critters And I thought they looked rather fantastic, lined up like that, with their beady eyes focused. They're they're, they're different types. You can see these ones have their uh, little feet and claws extended. These are all bunched up. uh, uh, And they're red, so they've been cooked. Um, The raw and the cooked. It's Levi Strauss, isn't it? The point of the crabs is basically um, to do with this work here, which is called Souvenir from Shanghai. This is uh, 17 and a half tons of uh, building material um, that uh, has a story attached to it. And the story is basically that um, in 1999, Weiwei built a studio uh, complex. He designed it. It was his first architectural uh, um, plan and uh, design. He designed it and had it built in a what was then an outlying village uh, from Beijing called Kaochengdi, uh, where he still lives and works, um, and this single act inspired lots of other galleries and artists to move to that neighbourhood, and so a number of galleries and um, uh, studios sprang up and it was widely credited to that Weiwei sort of sparked this interest in this area, taking it slightly out of the city, cheaper land, more affordable land, more freedom perhaps. Um, And the authorities in Shanghai saw this and thought, well, this is a very good opportunity for us to do something similar. So they invited Weiwei in 2008 um, to, uh, at this point, remember he was involved with the Bird's Nest Stadium he was the sort of darling in some ways, not quite darling, but kind of, in a funny sort of way followed a similar path to his father. His father was a close friend of uh, Chairman Mao's and then fell foul of him. Wei Wei was, in a, in a way, well-positioned and then fell foul of the authorities too. Um, and um, they invited him, not only did they invite him, but they also offered uh, to pay for the construction of a new studio space uh, in a part of uh, Shanghai called Malutan. So Weiwei uh, agreed, designed, and then built a studio. Uh, And at this point, there was this kind of overlap with his activities around the earthquake. Uh, And the central authorities in in, uh, Beijing were getting increasingly anxious about his outspoken views. They shut his blog down, and then they decided that uh, they didn't want to promote him in any shape or form. Um, And until I think this year, his name didn't exist in terms of press, in terms of internet, anything like that. He sort of disappeared as an individual in China. Um, And the authorities rescinded this agreement and declared that they were going to uh, demolish this studio. I haven't got images of the studio here, but you'll see them in the exhibition. Um, And to cut a long story short, uh, there was very little that they could do about this. Wei Wei decided to commemorate his building by Uh, putting out an invitation on the web for people to come and have lunch or have a party at the studio before it was demolished. And some 2,000 people responded, uh, at which point the authorities then um, put him under house arrest so he couldn't actually attend the party. But the party went ahead and uh, the reason for the crabs is that uh, that was the delicacy that was served at the table for that party um, and is a homonym. Uh, the, the word for river crab is very similar to the word for uh, harmonious, which is a word much used in government uh, propaganda, but has also become an internet slang term for censorship as well. So again, more meanings. And again, this choice of material, porcelain being, of course, something uh, associated with China. Historically, they've been producing porcelain for over 2,000 years. Uh, Weiwei being Weiwei, uh, didn't let Sleeping Dogs Lie, he managed somehow to collect at least one truck full of um, material from the demolished studio. So parts of the concrete pillars and structure and bricks, uh, which he then took and then built, had built, this is actually a bed frame. So it's a four-poster bed, Qing Dynasty bed. Uh, And the bed does sit within this entire structure. So when you see it from both sides, you'll see the the front and the back of the bed, but the rest of the bed is in there. Um, and around it is built this uh, structure. Uh, and of course, because it's uh, it's a fairly organic work, it's never the same twice. So what you see here is not what you'll see when it's shown elsewhere. But I, what I really like about Weiwei Wei is his ability to kind of take something and commemorate that event, so actually he, he gives it even more exposure and gives it a much longer lifespan than if it had just simply, um, if he'd been allowed to keep his studio, no one would have been any the wiser or no one would have paid much attention to it, I'm sure. But so he's that kind of constant uh, one step ahead, which I'm sure annoys the hell out of the authorities. Um, The other thing that we've done with the exhibition, so I'm gonna rattle along a bit now because I'm speaking too much as always, um, is look at different materials. Um, So there's a a room that looks at wood, there's a room that looks at ceramics, of course, for which he's very well known, perhaps best known. Um, This is uh, an early work uh, in which he takes a hand and drops it, uh, the three shots here. They actually had to take this sequence twice, so he actually dropped two pots to capture this work. Um, And uh, you'll see his face's expressionless. There's a kind of statement, I think, in many ways about the destruction that took place in the Cultural Revolution when particularly objects of religious significance were deliberately broken and destroyed by the authorities. Um, And colored pots, which he's very well known, again, taking hand dynasty urns and uh, Neolithic urns and reconfiguring them, uh, reworking them, and uh, in so doing that, asking us to kind of, I suppose, reappraise value of objects and the historical and economic value of objects, and at the same time, I think, teasing us about whether these works really are authentic or not. Uh, A work that I particularly like, um, which I encouraged him to include in the show, is this work called Dust to Dust, which is uh, these 30 glass jars, big, I mean, uh, you know, it's not little, they're big jars, uh, in this one, oops! In this, uh, in this uh, frame, and these are these contain the the dust or powder gathered from ground up Neolithic vases, so we're told. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure they are. Um, But there's always that little bit of doubt. You never know quite what you're gonna get. Um, But what I like about them is the the sense that you have that kind of connection to traditional Chinese medicine when you go into an apothecary's and they have these jars and drawers full of objects and substances. And quite often these are ground into powders. I suppose rhino horn would be an obvious, um, if rather disagreeable kind of um, example of how uh, an object has its intrinsic value Uh, but when it's ground down into powder it has this incredible uh, power associated with it so it's like reducing it from one from its real form into another gives it an an enhanced kind of um, potency and i think that's what i like about this work uh, is the kind of what is this you know what is the intensity of this powder really about We wanted very much to have a a major kind of installation work in the galleries. We can um, safely say that we've achieved that, I think, uh, on a number of levels. This is an interesting work. Uh, It's called Fragments, and again, you can see this kind of use of um, timbers from... These actually were drawn from four different temples that have been dismantled. uh, And uh, integrated into this are these Qing Dynasty chairs and table. Uh, And it's a rather sort of organic, rather skeletal uh, form. It's in some ways quite, when you see it, you kind of think, well, how on earth did they figure out how they were gonna make this work and how it all fits together? Um, It's a kind of intriguing uh, thing. And you walk through it and you don't really know, is it just a kind of form that you're supposed to enjoy? But actually, uh, I think what's telling about this work is if if you were able to look at it from above, you'd see that this is a map of China and I really like this notion that uh, we are free to enter at any point, we're free to walk around, to circulate any which way we want to, but that's not something that is available to you when you actually go to China. I mean, obviously there are certain parts of China that are free for us to move around, but if you wanted to go to the Uyghur region in the Northwest, Uh, Or if you wanted to go to Tibet, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. You have to have special visas and permission to do that. You can't just jump on a bus or a plane and go there. Uh, And imagine uh, if it's complicated for us, how complicated it is for uh, Chinese citizens too. So he gives us a freedom of movement within his own country that uh, many people are denied. And I like the way that it's been created. It has no screws, no uh, glue, no nails. It's all held together by these uh, traditional joints. These are pieces of wood that are driven through the um, joints to hold it together. And relate rather wonderfully, I think, to the courtyard piece, which I'm sure you all saw as you came into the academy, these eight trees. This is the largest uh, group of trees that he's ever produced. Uh, there's the marble armchair, for those of you who need to have a little break. Uh, not very comfortable, but you can sit in it. Um, but what I like about these trees, again, is this going, link to fragments, the sense that they are um, slightly artificially created. They are made from bits of wood that he's collected in markets. The trees that have died naturally and the pieces are sold in the markets of southern China from the, and they come from the mountains. And he's bought different bits and then imagined what the tree would have originally looked like and had them created from those different parts. Uh, And and they're held together by hidden joints and then these nuts and bolts. Uh, And you get this sense of the organic again, uh, uh, but you also, I think, like fragments, you get the sense of a country that is kind of artificially held together. This idea of the one nation in which all of China is, is, is held together, the different ethnographic ecological zones. Many of those um, ethnographic groups, are, of course, fighting for independence and freedom. So it's in many ways, I think, a commentary on the kind of artificial construction of what is modern day China. We have a marble room, rather wonderful marble room, uh, with these individual uh, uh, pieces of grass that are actually carved by hand. Start out with a block, then you make the form of the base, and then you start working your way down until you get your three strands of grass at the end. Grass is again a multi-layered word in um, Chinese. Uh, It can mean the F word. Um, It can mean, it can refer to grassroots or the kind of popular uh, uh, um, uprisings. Uh, of individuals, but it can also, I think, refer to the sense that when times are good, grass flourishes when the weather's right and the balance of rain and sun is good. But when it, when the times are hard and the sun is baking and there's no rain, it has that appearance of being dead but can spring back to life. And I think also, of course, you know, rice is part of the grass family and a staple of Chinese um, food. So uh, a, a wonderful room, I think, a wonderful room uh, demonstrating kind of Weiwei's um, interest in material. Now, marble is a, a material that's associated with the Qing dynasty in particular, uh, sorry, the Ming dynasty, so preceding the Qing dynasty. Um, and the quarry that uh, Wei, Wei gets his marble from is the same quarry that was used for um, the Ming tombs and also for construction of Forbidden City. So an imperial material, rich material, um, uh, always associated with wealth and power and authority. Um, and it's also the same quarry that is supplied to the Mausoleum for Chairman Mao's Mausoleum in Tiananmen Square. So again, you know, his connection, his uh, very clearly wants to use that material uh, because of where it comes from or what it represents. I've got another three minutes before we're gonna open up for questions, so. Uh, Another map of China made from porcelain this time, uh, emblazoned on one side, free speech in Chinese, on the other uh, in uh, English. Uh, and it's called, it's called uh, a puzzle, um, free speech puzzle. So uh, each, each part represents um, a different province, Hainan, Taiwan, We have some uh, bones, Uh, he was brought some, people visit him all the time in Beijing for various reasons, whether to sell him things, whether to bring him things. People bring him delicacies. When we were there, someone brought brought him a smoked duck. Um, People bring him gifts, Uh, people come to see him, people come to talk to him, people come to ask him like we did to do exhibitions and so on. Uh, Someone brought some bones that had been clandestinely excavated um, from one of the, former labor camps in northwest China. He's had these made in porcelain, uh, and in many ways they're a very kind of quiet, underspoken memorial to all those intellectuals that either lost their lives or was, had their freedom severely curtailed during that period in Chinese recent Chinese history. Uh, the Faden Book of Art, you'll notice in the English language edition, The work that he did for Castle at Documenta is on page eight opposite Joseph Albers. Uh, In the Chinese language edition, he's been replaced uh, by Agostino de Duccio, an Italian Renaissance sculptor. So the reach of the state is quite interesting how they can reach out and actually change um, a major publication or influence a major publication. Sacred, uh, this six part uh, work which kind of commemorates the 81 days he spent uh, illegally detained, secretly detained. No one knew where he was. No one knew whether they would ever see him again. He was arrested at Beijing International Airport on his way to Taiwan via Hong Kong and uh, disappeared and only reappeared 81 days later. Uh, he was kept in a, a, a small room, um, which uh, you just where this man's head, this is where it was shown in Venice, by the way, uh, in a church. Uh, there, was, there, were vent- there was a little ventilator, so there was no natural light, but a little ventilator spinning around, humming all the time. He was kept inside, light on 24 hours a day. Uh, and uh, everything he did, um, he's done six scenes inside these dioramas. This one he's being interrogated, he's handcuffed to the chair. But all the time he was in this space, there were, he was never more than 80 centimetres away from two guards who stood over him, didn't communicate with him, they were not allowed to talk to him, but just stood next to him and watched everything he did um, and everything was strictly regimented as well. Uh, He wasn't even allowed to turn over in his sleep. This is obviously a kind of form of torture deliberately aimed at breaking his spirit and um, encouraging him to desist from the kind of uh, outspoken comments he's made about the authorities. Uh, He's pretty resilient, Weiwei. He's a very strong man, and you know, given what he's been through in his life, it's not, quite, it's not really that surprising. But he didn't, uh, he didn't buckle. What he did do was memorize the space and then com- commemorate it again, like he did with Souvenir from Shanghai. He's commemorated it in a way that will forever record this uh, experience and will forever shame the authorities. The final work in the exhibition is this rather wonderful chandelier that uh, he made specially for us. Um, in the Central Hall. It's the first time that he's ever combined two of his interests, which are chandeliers and bicycles, and created a bicycle chandelier. The name tells you everything you need to know. Um, But the chandelier component um, is something that he's explored. Uh, He had one at Tate Liverpool in 2007, which was based on Tatlin's Tower. Uh, This one, um, but what he's always done is he's used the same crystals to make these that uh, were used in the chandeliers that uh, adorn the Great Hall in Tiananmen Square, which is the official um, Communist Party meeting space. So again, a little step back and kind of sourcing materials very carefully, very considerately, and creating this wonderful object. And I suppose for us, the greatest thrill um, other than doing this exhibition with him, was that he could be here with us uh, and he could lark around in the galleries, uh, as you can see here. Uh, but it was, it was a total surprise that uh, he was going to be able to join us and he spent, uh, I think, nine days or so in London. And we had a wonderful time with him. Uh, and I think the exhibition was always intended, really, for us to move away, not to negate, uh, not to deny, but certainly to engage with uh, his political views. That's very fundamental to what he does. You can't really separate the work that he does um, from its content, And but the key thing for us was to give people a glimpse of the artist that lies behind the dissident. He's well known as an outspoken critic, but very few people really, surprisingly, kind of know what it is he does with his art. And hopefully we've opened a little bit of a window onto that. So thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.